Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. My feeling is that however technologically advanced condoms get, if it's a penis covering, it's a penis covering. Condoms have been around for as long as there have been penises, basically. Notable efforts made through history to stop sperm from reaching the egg include, in an ancient Greek myth, apparently the wife of King Midas used a goat bladder in her vagina to protect herself against his semen, which was said to contain scorpions and serpents. Ouch. In a slightly kinkier turn, there's evidence of leather condoms being used in 15th century Asia. Very safe, uh, presumably. But my personal favourite, the Victorian classic, a reusable sheath made of sheep's gut that would need to be soaked for hours to make it pliable enough to use and thoroughly washed out afterwards, of course, uh, before being dried and stored away in a special wooden box for next time very sexy. Uh, and as you might expect, the condom didn't really take off as a consumer product till huge leaps in manufacturing made them comfier, made them simpler, more accessible, less disgusting. So how did condoms, as we know them, seamless, latex, single use in a foil packet, come about? And who was the person responsible for the design improvements that made this possible? Well, enter the London Rubber Company and their brand Jurex and the inventor, Behind it all, a man called Lucien Landau. Landau was a Polish teenager living in Highbury in North London who'd been pretty much forgotten by history until today's guest, Dr Jessica Borge, uncovered his story while researching her book Protective Practices, A History of the London Rubber Company and the Condom Business. So welcome to Patented History of Inventions, a podcast from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell, and today we really have a story that has it all. Sex, check. Paranormal activity, of course. And even some pretty impressive science. Let's get into it. Jessica, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Dallas. I'm just trying to work, how are we going to talk about this without just endless euphemisms about sex things and condoms? And I enjoy the euphemisms. I'm a great euphemism fan. We'll let our audience see if they can spot the euphemisms as we go along. Well, I do have a great deal of drilling going on at the moment in my kitchen, Dallas. Do you? Well, I've got a lot of blowing, leaf blowing outside. So between <laughs> us, I think we're covered on the euphemism front. Well, let's go back a few hundred years. And I know you're you're an expert on, I suppose, the more modern condoms as we recognise them. But can we go back to sort of Victorian times and even before? Because is there such a thing as the inventor of the condom? They seem to have been around for a long time, sort of 1600s, maybe even earlier. 
In essence, Dallas, condoms have been around in one sort or another since penises have been around, which is a very, very long time (laughs) indeed. But condoms have been around since prehistory. All sorts of things have been used to cover penises up. I think that the Egyptians used seed pods. There were sheaths made of linen and intestines and all sorts of things. But I guess the modern condom, as as we know it, has really been around since about the 18th century. So the prefabricated consumer condom. So in London, that was happening around the Leicester Square area. There was quite a trade in skin condoms. I watched a video on YouTube and they, they, I saw some people making condoms out of the cecum, which is the bit of the intestine that has a kind of cul-de-sac bit, which they sort of cut off and they cover in sulfur. And, and you're left with this nasty papery thing, which you then have to reconstitute or rehydrate in order for it to, to be able to put it on. That's it. I've seen that video and I would, I would oh, absolutely yeah. recommend okay. it. It's very informative. It's really, it's really good. If you looked after your reusable condom, you could get maybe a year, maybe 18 months out of it. They stopped producing them in the mid-60s. The reusable condom is something we got in the, um, started with skin condoms because you could reuse them. (laughs) You could send them to your local skin condom reseller who would wash them out for you (laughs) so you could reuse them. And, you know, this went on for quite a long time. They were gradually replaced by the disposable, thankfully. Got it. And so I suppose in terms of science, moving from things like sheep's intestines and linen and whatever, just tell us about when sort of rubber became the main thing that condoms were made out of. And I guess after rubber, we got into sort of latex and the dipping method. Can you just tell us a little bit about that progression? Well, it really starts with the vulcanisation of rubber. So that's Hancock in England, Goodyear in the USA, 1840s. You start to heat treat rubber. It develops a different type of memory. You can make shapes out of it. So in the 1840s, that's that's really the beginning of sort of the modern industrial use of rubber. You see it getting used in, in machines and rubber articles being made that you never had prior to that because you could mould it and shape it according to specifications. And that seemed to go into contraceptives very naturally, not just contraceptives, but all sorts of all sorts of everyday medical things like lumbago belts and eventually surgical hosiery, that sort of thing. And contraceptives really fell under that umbrella of surgical appliances. So um, you've got vulcanisation in the 1840s. Certainly by about the 1860s, 1870s, we see that there's a fairly large trade in rubber contraceptives. You've got all sorts of condoms. You've got big ones, you've got little ones. Um, You've got sponges for ladies, caps for ladies. Where would one buy a condom? Would you nip down, was it chemists that sold them? Did you go down to Boots and buy your vulcanised rubber Geronimo? Well, not in the 1860s or 1870s, but there would be surgical supply shops. um, And gradually after that, hygiene shops started in the late Victorian period. As retail chemists became more prevalent on the high street in the 20th century, yes, of course, the chemist Mm. is where you would go. But you would go to a specialist supplier. Actually, though, as they became more common, all sorts of retailers cropped up. You could even buy them in street markets and pubs in the early 20th century. And I'm not talking about vending machines. I'm talking about people going around (laughs) with basketfuls and selling them. 
So tell us a little bit about the London Rubber Company then. Why were they so innovative in terms of making condoms? Why did they sort of corner the market so much? Why did they become so successful? Well, the London Rubber Company, first of all, it had an advantage when they first started. So it was formed in 1915, but the family, the Jackson family, it was really Lionel uh, Jackson who started it, but the whole Jackson family were involved in the family business. And that was a chemist tobacconist shop So it was very common for wholesale sundry suppliers to also supply things like tobacco and toys and contraceptives. And it all sort of fell under the same umbrella. So with this background, Lionel Jackson went into the wholesaling of sundries and chemists items. So 1915, 16, 17, coming up to the Great War, he basically knows the network. He knows how to supply and procure the sort of items that chemists sell. Um, And he's pretty much happy doing this. He's importing condoms from the USA and from Germany. In the 1920s, latex condoms start to take off in the USA and Germany. But of course, getting German condoms is a bit more difficult after the war. So he's supplying American condoms and he's quite happy doing that. He doesn't seem to have had any intention of going into manufacturing. But then this young chemistry student from Warsaw named Lucian Landau gets this sample of Pirelli latex and he's messing about in the lab with a bit of tube And uh, he thinks, oh, (laughs) I've got an idea. And uh, he starts doing the rounds in the local chemist shop. So he was at school at North London Polytechnic in the rubber technology department. He loved walking around London, loved walking around Hackney and Islington. That's where I am now. I'm in Clerkenwell. I'm on Rosebury Avenue, home of the condom. That's amazing. So I'm a Clerkenwell girl myself. I'm from Clerkenwell. And the original London Rubber Company started in Aldersgate Street, which is just over the border in the city. Then it moved up to Old Street. Then Lucian Landau enters the picture. He's wandering about in Hackney. And he asks a few chemists shops because he knows they supply this sort of thing. And he he, he chats to a chemist whose name was Mr. French. And no, was that a coincidence? Is this? I don't think that's where French letter came from, but it's a marvellous okay. coincidence. You can't make it up. No, we might just keep that as where it comes <laughs> from. So this guy, Lucien Lando, mm-hmm. which sounds like a name from Star Wars, he sort of discovers latex or this new material and thinks, okay, this would make a good material for condoms. Well, it's like this. Latex exists. Latex is around. Right. Um, companies like Pirelli are starting to push latex. For what reason? Like, what were people using latex for? Well, that's what they wanted to discover. So, if you send it out to the technology colleges, they can start coming up with uses for it. And that's precisely what happened. Right. So, Lucien Landau gets a sample of it because he's at probably one of the leading European schools for rubber technology, I think, which is why he was sent there from Warsaw. So that's the North London Polytechnic. And he comes up with an idea. The important thing about Lucien Landau is he did want to get into business of some sort. He loved London. He didn't want to go back to Warsaw. His family wanted him to come to London, learn rubber technology, take the knowledge back and go into the family soap and cosmetics business. But in London, he decided, I want to stay. And the only way he could do that was by having a business. And he was going to make sponges out of rubber. Then he hit on the condom idea, spoke to Mr. French in the chemist shop in Hackney. Mr. French said, oh, you should speak to my supplier, Mr. Jackson. He's a lovely man. 
So he speaks to Mr. Jackson, Lionel Jackson of the London Rubber Company, and he decides to start going into manufacturing. And that's supported by Lionel Jackson. Wow. I love how these stories of innovation work, of minds coming together. It's never just sort of one person. It's this connection. And I suppose it's why cities are so good for innovation, places like London, because everyone's there together. So you get these fortuitous bumping into people, these bumping into ideas or the introduction to a particular company or the introduction of particular material. That's a, a really, really interesting story. And and so he goes to the London company with this new material. How do we get from that to sort of condoms as we know them? Well, you've got to put yourself in the position of Lionel Jackson, who is running the London Rubber Company on the basis of imported latex condoms, which he can't get in the UK at that time. So there are definitely little condom businesses all over the place, you know, started up in garages, very easy business to start up. But that was with the type of rubber process that preceded the latex condom. So in the Victorian period, you had the really heavy rubber, which was basically a sheet of rubber sealed down one edge. Classy. Really, really nice. Ribbed nice. for her pleasure, um, but with just one big sticky outy rib. Um, by the time you get to the 20th century, that sheet rubber, that really thick, crepey sheet rubber has been mm. replaced by a cement process rubber. And that's chopped up little bits of rubber that are dissolved in a solvent. And that's used to mould condoms. So from the early 20th century, we get moulded condoms, but... Without the line. Without no the line. Join, no welding. <laughs> yeah, okay. there's, there's no sign. <laughs> no sign of their construction at all. But they're very mm. thick and heavy. They are reusable. And factories are always catching on fire because of all the solvents. Then you go to the, the latex condom, and that's just a different world. So you can make them really thick so that they're still reusable, because that's what a lot of people are used to. But you can also make them really thin, and it has all of these marvellous properties. It's got elasticity, it transmits heat really uh, much more readily than the thicker rubber condoms. Much later on, they become pre-lubricated, they're not at this stage. But you can make them in huge quantities of scale if you get the equipment set up right. So the whole process is really very streamlined. Plus, one of the beneficial things at that particular time in the 1930s is that there were lots and lots of British colonial rubber plantations in Malaya, as we then called it, which of course is Malaysia now. So we've got all of these rubber plantations. There's all of these price wars going on. It's just possible to get latex in bulk at that time because the British plantations have come to maturity and they're yielding a great deal of latex. Actually, I should ask, I forgot to ask, what even is latex? Like, how do we get latex? We get latex from a tree. And it's just a particular type of rubber that's dripped out of a tree. And it's processed in a certain way that makes it more usable in a liquid form. So it's particularly useful for moulding things. Right. OK. And so, so the London Rubber Company, we've moved into latex mm -hmm. now, and this is a much better material to make condoms. How do they actually make them? And how did the brand Durex appear? Well, we've got two forces at work here. So we're in Hackney. It's the 1930s. We've got Lionel Jackson, who is the business brains behind everything. He's the guy who's been wholesaling American condoms. On a train trip, he comes up with Durex, durability, reliability, excellence, that's it. That's what we're going to call it. So they already had a few brands. They had one called Elarco, which it took me a few years to work out that stood for Elarco, 
London rub. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they spelt it E-L-A-R-C-O and they had this beautiful woman on the box and it was very outdated. It was really, really outmoded. Um, so he comes up with this new um, forward thinking, very modern name. So we've got him. And then we've got the actual inventor, the engineer, the technologist who's behind the actual physical material item that becomes Durex. They've got the name. Yes. So Lucian Landau, um, with funding from Lionel Jackson, sets up a, a little outfit in Hackney, a little factory. It's behind a baby shoe works. You'd never know it was there. Um, and he starts producing in, well, I guess it's mass production, but in very small numbers. So basically, you produce these things in batches on racks. The racks have molds on them. The molds are dipped into large baths of treated latex. You take those out, you let them dry, you dip them again, take them out, let them dry, dip them again. Right. However thick you want them. Exactly. Yeah. The double dipped or triple yeah. dipped, whatever particular type you were making that day, you would heat treat them. This is very important. So you'd heat treat them. Um, and that developed over the years. Um, but at that time, they were heat treating them in ovens. They got rolled off and, and there you go. So once you've got the production line set up and you've got a nice steady supply of latex coming in, you're up and running. And of course, labour, labour's important. And at that time, I mean, there were definitely men and women working on the production line, but there were a lot of women and there were 14 year old girls working on the production line because you were allowed to work at age 14. And they were the ones, so far as I can make out, who were mainly doing the dipping in the early 30s. So we can credit Lucien Lando. Is it fair enough to say he invented the modern condom as, as we know it? Basically, Lucien Lando invented the modern British latex condom as we know right. it. He didn't come up okay. with the name Durex, but he was the inventor of the, the material product that is Durex. And certainly Lucien Landau invented all of the technology behind it. Technology did exist for the mass dipping of condoms. There was the Killian Company in the States who were leasing their technology to Youngs who were making Trojans. But pinpointing the actual inventors is really hard in this game. In the British picture, we are able to say that it was Lucien Landau who invented this particular product. It's wonderful to be able to put a name and a face and a personality to it. In Britain, were we sort of ahead technologically in terms of what they were doing in America? If America had a similar technology and materials, how did that play out? What my research has told me is that the London Rubber Company was pretty much the biggest importer of condoms in Britain. And America was where they were getting their condoms from. Suddenly... They can supplant that with their own homegrown, own made, own brand condoms. So the American imports really drop off after that. And whatever is going on in America is not really an issue because once they have positioned themselves to supply the British market, they're already the wholesalers. They're already the people that the chemist shops and the herbalists and the surgical stores and the, the hygiene stores, they all go to London rubber anyway. London Rubber is also working very hard to supply family planning charities. So they've got the market ready-made, pretty much, because they've spent 20 years making it before they go into production. We'll be back after this short break. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We're pre-war here. How did the war change things? Did the Second World War have an an impact on the way that condoms were made and, and the story unfolded? Yeah, the war changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. So the background to supplying condoms during wars is in Germany in the First World War, condoms were supplied to troops. It was well known that when you've got military personnel dispersed all over the place, um, they use the services of prostitutes. And venereal diseases are really, really terrible. You can't treat them very well in the First World War. They knock soldiers out for months and months. They go blind. They use the use of different parts of their bodies. And, you know, they're, they're not useful anymore. So the Germans were well ahead. They were supplying condoms. The Americans were supplying prophylactic packs, prophylactic, not being used as a synonym for condom then, but just as a word to mean it will prevent infection. The British are not doing that in the First World War. Um, the Navy in the 30s, the Navy starts to say, mm, you know, I think this would be a good idea. So there's a few captains on a few naval vessels that are pioneering trials with supplying condoms. Then we get to World War II. And it's not actually until 1942 that the British start to supply British forces with condoms, knowing that they will be used in the theatre of war overseas. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that there are long-standing moral debates surrounding venereal disease and protection against disease. The other thing is that production capacity at the London Rubber Company did not get up to speed until 1942. So what happened was this. 1930s, production is going really well. They've got these manual dipping lines. They've got all these girls working on the lines. The Jurex name's taking off. It's big business. You can see that. About 1936, 1937, Lucian Landau says to Lionel Jackson, this is a big thing. We need to make this bigger. And he's got the technical know-how to make it happen. They find a lovely big site in Chingford 
in North London. So disused farmland, perfect industrial setting. They start building their factory. The new factory is finished just as the war starts. It's a couple of years. There's a lot of wrangling and debate about whether condoms should be supplied. In the meantime, they're getting all of the technology into that factory, which obviously is difficult because it's war conditions. So then you've got this kind of production which is semi-mechanised. It's aided by electricity and machines in some bits, other parts of it, like, I don't know, moving racks of condoms from the latex bath to the ovens. That's still done by teams of girls. So it's sort of semi-mechanised. So the war forces London rubber to up its production like you wouldn't believe. They employ all of these ingenious methods. Lucien Landau is forced to find ways to, to use substandard latex because the supply of latex from the Far East is constantly interrupted. He's using Liberian latex at one point, which he says is just not up to standard. But he's finding all of these fixes By the time we come out of the war, Lucien Landau pretty much has plans drafted to make fully automated condom machines a reality. But he can't do that until about 1949-1950 because of restrictions on steel supply. As you know, um, wartime restrictions lasted for quite a long time. But by 1949-1950, he has built the first fully automated condom production line in Britain. They were around in America, but he did his own one according to his own specifications. He didn't need to use anybody else's patents. This was all London Rubber Company protected ideas. And by the early 50s, 53, 54, they've got their lines up and running and production is just through the roof. So how did condom production sort of move with the times? Is it stapled on to whatever the public morals are of that particular moment? Well, it's an interesting question because you wouldn't go into mass production, would you, if you didn't think that you could sell them? But you could sell them. People bought condoms in large numbers um, even before the 1950s and the 1960s when we, we got the automated process which made condoms more uniform and cheaper and easier to, to get out to people. In essence, the trade had always been there. There's a number of things going on over the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s in terms of making birth control more acceptable. Um, But there are different forces at work and they're each competing for their particular ideal. So we have a family planning movement in the UK, which is trying to make birth control acceptable, except... They do not like commercial birth control. They do not like male-oriented birth control. They don't like condoms. Um, And they don't like the profit incentive. Then we have the commercial companies who want to supply the Family Planning Association, but they have a commercial incentive and they can't really pretend that's not there because people trust the Durex brand. Was there kind of worry about, oh, Durex are kind of promoting promiscuity and this is a bad thing and we shouldn't be doing this i don't think it was i don't think it was that especially there are always arguments about promiscuity there are arguments about the spread of disease um there are arguments about 
sex outside of marriage. You know, these sorts of just debates and discussions, they are throwbacks from the Victorian period. They've been going on for a very long time. But actually, there's a lot of very progressive forces at work at this point. And um, even the Church of England eventually says you know, contraception, you know, it's not a bad thing. Planned children are the way forward. We want children to be planned and to be loved. So it's not so much that the prevention of pregnancy is the issue. It's really this commercial intent. The more the idea of contraception becomes popularised as something that's just sensible and logical, you know, for progressive type people, in a sense, it starts to become a health necessity. And the idea of commercialising a health necessity, as we know, especially going through COVID, is distasteful to many people. So that factors into the morality debates and, and it affects advertising. So after the war, I've got a condom in a, in a packet here. Have they changed much since the Second World War? OK, so for the benefit of your listeners, yes. Dallas has just been holding up a foil wrapped Durex condom um, in a nice gold packet now, what I'm holding up is a paper envelope. So it's an oblong paper envelope that holds three smaller paper envelopes, which have condoms inside them. This is in a paper envelope, and this is really important. So you asked me when they uh, got into foil envelopes. Mm. So the first mm -hmm. thing to say is that we have the paper envelope, um, and paper allows oxygen to get to the condom. And that means that the rubber becomes oxygenated and they become brittle quite quickly. But this is the type of mm -hmm. condom that mm -hmm. we have during the war. So I've got a World War II condom here. And as you can see, it's exactly the same. It's in a little paper envelope. It's very cute. Why did they come in threes, by the way? Why is it always a packet of three as a euphemism for condoms? Well, Dallas, it's once on a Saturday night <laughs> and twice on a Sunday while the roast is in the oven. There you go. I should have thought you'd have known that. There you go. I, well, yes. I should have known that. <laughs> So paper packets. So paper packets. Um, not really good for the condom, but if you use the condom within a couple of years, you know, you, you should pretty much yeah. be all right. We are predating standards on condoms here. So, you know, there is a bit of a Russian roulette element to it. What happens is in the 1950s, and this is after Lucien Landau has left the company, but in the 1950s, London Rubber pioneers the pre-lubricated condom. Now that is the Durex Gossamer, and that is the game changer. Now the lubricant that they use is a kind of silica powder. It's not actually a wet lubricant, it's a powder. But in order to keep the condom itself pliable, they have to change the packaging. They want a long shelf life. There's a lot of debate going on about how long you can store a condom for and you know, the London Rubber Company is saying, oh, I could keep them for 15 years, they'll be fine. But, you know, that's obviously not the case when they're in paper. So around about 1957, they add the lubricant. They've got the new brand, the Durex Gossamer. It's very light. It's very slippery. And it's kept pliant by the new foil packaging. And these are all new bolt-on bits of technology that they add to the condom production process. And it really is a game changer. It changes everything. It becomes their biggest brand. It's got the biggest margin of any of their condoms that they sell. Um, and it's enormously popular. And presumably they would have just been much more comfortable. My friend John Harvey, who worked for the London Rubber Company and was marketing these condoms at the time, he is absolutely adamant that they transformed the sexual experience. And I personally think that would have been the case. However, 
the London Rubber Company has its enemies, including at the Consumers Association, who have recently launched Witch magazine. And they do a special on contraceptives in the early 60s. Um, and they're very damning about the Durex gossamer. And they say it, yeah, really? they're really damning. Were they comparing it to a sheep's intestine? Or? <laughs> you would think, wouldn't you, that being experienced consumer testers, they would get a skin condom there. But I don't think they did. So what were they comparing it against in their witch trial? Well, they were comparing it to other forms of contraception. Okay. Oh, I see. Um, but not the pill, because no. the pill was prescribed medicine. And it so things like diaphragms. Yeah, and- that sort of thing. So they had a, a special, um, which they launched under a huge explosion of publicity. It was a real PR drive to try and sell more memberships of the Consumers Association. And in their press release, the only company they really name is the London Rubber Company, and the condoms fail all of their tests. They don't come out very well at all. Whether or not the tests were appropriate was something the London Rubber Company challenged. Uh, but the point was, at the end of the day, it's the consumer who makes these decisions. And the Gossamer sold in enormous numbers. It was tremendously popular. And once barbershops started selling it, because barbershops had their own brand, but once they started selling the Gossamer... That was it. Why barbershops? That was the other thing I wanted to ask you. Is like, why specifically haircuts and condoms? Well, barbershops grew out of barber surgeons. One-stop shops where you can go for things to do with the body, such as very basic types of medicine, basic surgical appliances, getting your wounds dressed, or even getting your hair cut, which, you know, hasn't been around forever, but came in later on, I guess, with the barber surgeons. These are all connected trades. And so barbershops also sold cigarettes. So if you were a gentleman and um, you were planning a big weekend, you could pop into the barbershop. It's an all-male environment. There's nothing really threatening in there. You could pick up a packet of fags, a packet of three, get a haircut and a shave, and and you're ready. It's very civilised. So the Durex Gossamer, that is really the kind of the parent of what I'm holding, the sort of modern condom. Let's just talk about the future now, because it's funny, actually, if you go into Boots and look at condoms now, the kind of variety of different Jurex is bewildering in terms of thick, thin, sensitive, not sensitive, ribbed for her pleasure. Da, 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 da. How much is sort of innovation still pushing condom design and, and technology now? I don't know if I would claim that innovation alone has pushed the popularity of condoms. It's a combination of things. And social acceptance is is a big part of that. And your ability to get people to stock and sell your condoms and to actually say your brand name, all of these things come into it. The point that we're at now, Dallas, I don't think technology is going to make an enormous amount of difference. Well, it's funny because I know that I think Bill Gates, didn't he like launch a condom X prize? It's like, right, we're going to throw lots and lots of money at whoever can make condoms even better than they are now. It's funny because I can't really see how they're really not that much of a pain to use. And you sort of put them on and away you go. Dallas, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, yes, Bill and Melinda Gates, their foundation, they put money into trying to find a better, lighter, nicer condom. And there are lots and lots of small companies around who are trying to develop a better condom. Ultimately, you can't really prototype it and test it unless you go in with one of the very big firms who have the tech to do that. My feeling is that however technologically advanced condoms get, if it's a penis covering, it's a penis covering. And there are people who don't like using penis coverings. You know, I think it will definitely be possible to improve. I mean, we're always going towards the skin experience. Nothing would really compare 
in terms of usability and user comfort to an animal skin condom. It's really the closest thing that you're going to get as a human to having something that's as close to your own body as, as you can get. The way they transmit heat, they're just so thin. Um, they take the exact shape of your own body, all of those elements. So the goal is to get as close to the skin condom as possible, but that doesn't jump the hurdle of whether or not people want to use this form of contraception. Added to that, Dallas, you know, people aren't having sex as much as they used to. I read this. I read this. Is that true? Um, it's definitely true in Britain. What's happened to us? Have we become a nation of prudes or...? I don't know if prudery is anything to do with this. I mean, certainly um, the highest rates of sexually transmitted diseases in Britain for quite a few years now have been in older age categories. So people in their 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, they're getting it on. They're having a oh, fabulous time. That's me. <laughs> Fantastic. You'll need a packet of 12 then, Dallas, I think. A three pack will not suffice. Um, but actually, younger people are just not having sex in the numbers that they used to. That's because they're too busy doing bloody TikTok <laughs> and, and stuff like that. TikTok is going to be the ruination of, of, of our well, civilization. Yeah, I think we're very it? close to that already, to be honest. But I think there's a lot of fear involved. I think that there's fear of getting hurt. But the patterns ebb and they flow and there are waves and there are dips. And the researcher Kay Wellings, who has been in charge of seeing how much sex the British have for the last few decades, um, she seems to think that we're returning to the kind of levels that we saw in the 1950s, for example, that sort of pre-oral contraceptive pill era. So it might be the case that very high levels of sexual activity that we saw in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. I mean, they may actually be the anomaly. Interesting. There you go. What a place to end, I think. I've got to say, you know, doing my sort of cursory research and, and finding out about your work, and it's the most amazing story. And I'm really happy there's a name behind it as well. I'm always pleased when we can find a sort of name, like someone who, well, not entirely responsible, but Lucien Landau. And also it's such a great name. We can we can thank maybe for the modern condom, at least as we know it in the UK, the good old Turex. Yes, I'm so lucky to have found Lucien Landau. No one had discovered him. Nobody really knew about no. him. Do you know he gave up condoms, Dallas? <laughs> what do you mean he gave up? You gave up using them or making them or talking about them? He gave up the condom business. <laughs> and what did he do? Where did where did he end up? Actually, that's a good place. Well, to he became a psychic. <laughs> yes, that makes me so happy. Wait, he became, he became a psych psychic. What, like. What kind of psychic did he become? Like kind of spoon bending Yuri Geller kind of? Oh, well, it was a very, it was a tragic story. He was having an affair with a switchboard operator. Obviously. He was in the middle of his second or third divorce. Um, I mean, it was pop popular with the ladies, it seems. Mm. Um, but he was having an affair with a switchboard operator um, at the London Rubber Company. And um, she killed herself. Oh, no. She killed herself. Oh, jeepers, creepers. And That's he no was good. absolutely devastated. And this all happened at a time when his relations with people at the London Rubber Company were really bad. His old friend, Lionel Jackson, the founder, he was long dead. So Lucian was dealing with the rest of the family and he did not like them mm. at all. Mm. Um, and all of this stuff happens at the same time. And then Alice Maud his girlfriend who, who killed herself at the Russell Hotel, Russell Square, she starts talking to him and he goes to a few spiritualist meetings and she starts giving him advice and saying, don't catch that tube train, catch that one, that's the correct one. And 
and stuff like that. And he starts to make more and more friends in psychic circles and he's got the time and the money to do it. So he stays in consultancy. You know, he's, he really is the rubber expert. He's still consulted on a number of things. Years later, he moves to the Isle of Man and starts doing stuff with whiskey distilling, which I haven't even gone into. And he's a marvellous character. I mean, discovering him was one of the best strokes of luck that I've had. Um, discovering him and speaking to people who worked at London Rubber, like John Harvey and my yes. friend Angela Wagstaff. Yes really helpful but now Lucian Landau's story is known and I'm just so pleased about that we can have him to thank for Durex we can and we have no well we have them today we also have you to thank for finding this story and researching this story because it's absolutely brilliant and your book is fascinating how can people get hold of your book well my book is available through all major retailers so of course you can buy it through Amazon but you can also order it through independent bookshops and if you go to my website which is londonrubbercompany.com. What else would it be? Um, And you can find all of the information there. Jessica, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Dallas. Okay, that's it for today, folks. Thanks for listening. If you've liked this episode, please share it with a friend, of course, uh, who might like it too. It really helps us to get the word out about our show. And as always, if you've got an invention uh, that you want to know the story behind, let me know. Uh, You can find me on Twitter or somewhere else or just stop me in the street if you see me. Uh, I'll be back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes. And remember, no glove, no love. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.